2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, For we know <clears throat> that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to be prepared to hear what you would say to us through the word of God this morning by your Holy Spirit's ministry. So Lord, we ask that it would be your spirit, God, who would speak to each and every one of our hearts. And we pray this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what this morning would you say is your life aim? If you were to step back and maybe do inventory, what's the target for your reason for living? Let me just say this morning a connection to that, that if you aim at nothing, that no matter what you do in life, you will continually miss the target. If you have no genuine aim, you have no sincere purpose for the target for your life, you are always going to miss the target. God's word tells us, honestly, that living in light of eternity or eternal realities really should be the target for our earthly life. This seems to be what Paul is beginning to develop here, that if we live in light of eternal values, aiming to please the Lord as our top priority, it keeps our perspectives as well as our pursuits on track as we navigate the journey of this earthly life. And this is what Paul's instructing about here, that we would have an eternal perspective. Remember the backdrop we just saw in our verses last time. Paul has just declared how faithful you living for Jesus, for himself, and for his ministry team as they serve the Lord. In a world that's primarily opposed to God, will include things like challenges, hardships. Paul mentioned persecutions, being distressed and overwhelmed, perplexed at times, just not even know what to do and what's the next step in life, even mistreatment. Yet, Paul said it's that personal brokenness at times that we all go through as individuals, which actually can be a beneficial thing for us in our lives. Nobody likes struggling, no one enjoys suffering, but from God's perspective, actually broken things increase in value. Because quite honestly, if we were to be honest with ourselves, every one of us has a little bit too much of a selfish and a stubborn spirit within us, and sometimes our pride being broken is actually the most beneficial thing in the world for us. 
because it's the thing in that brokenness that causes us oftentimes to have a greater experience with the Lord working in our lives as we decrease and he increases. And as well, hardships on this earth, as we talked about last time, they kind of further attach our heart to what really matters, not these earthly experiences that we're going through now on this temporal planet, but the kingdom of God. Remember the last few verses Paul said at the end of chapter 4, if I can recall them to mind, look back in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Paul concluded saying this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, that was Paul, Paul viewed all of his hardships. They weren't heavy. He said they're, they're minor things, which is but for a moment. They don't last forever is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things, he says, which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, he said, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen, that's what's spiritual, he says, those things are eternal. So again, the right perspective and having a spiritual view makes all the difference in the world as we navigate our time here, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we set our mind on things above and not on things of the earth and understand these spiritual realities that we're looking at and we live in light of eternity, it makes all the difference in the world. And as Paul comes into chapter five now, it's almost as if he seems to be expanding upon this concept of living in light of eternity and making that our aim in the way that we Live beyond just remembering that there is a temporal realm on earth and that there is a spiritual eternal realm that exists as well that lasts forever. In connection to that, Paul said in the end of chapter four, we have a temporal or a present earthly body that is our outward man, this physical body, and that's temporary. And Paul said it's perishing. It's weakening, it's failing, it's falling apart. But he said, yet there's also an inward part of us. He said, the inward man. And that inward part is being renewed day by day for those of us who know the Lord. As we have an experience with Jesus, our inward spirit is strengthened. Of course, the inward man, that's the real you. That's your spirit, which is eternal, your soul, your consciousness, your, your mind. And, and that part of us is eternal. And our life basically is made up of a spirit or a soul the real you, which is eternal, that's dwelling right now within an outward physical frame, a temporary body to live out this earthly existence. And that inward man will last forever, the outward one only for a time. And it's this concept that Paul seems to want to build upon now as he comes into chapter 5. Notice with me, he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, for we know, he says, if our earthly house, talking about our body, temporary, the body we get on earth, if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, he says, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. So Paul uses this analogy here of our dwelling place, our body where our spirit and soul resides. And he uses this analogy now of moving from one dwelling place to another dwelling place in the death process. 
And this is how he pictures it metaphorically, that the death process for the Christian is a transition from a temporal realm in one body into a spiritual and eternal realm where we get a completely different body to dwell in. The spiritual truth, Paul says, look at it in verse 1 there, he says, this is something that we know. Take note of that. He's saying this isn't something that we're uncertain about or we're not sure of. It's not something that we're hoping works out or we're blindly hoping for. We are absolutely certain, he says. We know this. This is God's guarantee, he's going to say. It's an absolute assurance for us as a Christian that when our time here on earth is over, there is something far better that's awaiting for us. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus himself promised this, and I know this, Jesus is reliable. People's word may not always be reliable. It may change every week if you watch the news. People's ideas may change. People's promises may change. But Jesus keeps his word. And Jesus said this in John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you as he was heading back to heaven. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Jesus made that promise. That's why Paul says, we know. We know this is true because Jesus promised this before anyone, that our spiritual groom, we're the bride of Christ, our spiritual groom is preparing a dwelling place for us in heaven. And look, whether by physical death, individually, one by one, or whether by group departure on the rapture bus. If Jesus blows the trumpet and we are caught up all to meet the Lord in the air, whether it's individual departure or group departure in dying, Jesus will bring us to enjoy that far superior experience. And so Paul says, we know this. A new body is coming, a glorious eternal realm. And Paul describes here that we know this is coming after our life here on earth is over. He says right now, verse one, currently he says, we're dwelling in this earthly house. But he says, eventually we're gonna move or transition into our long-term dwelling. And he calls the long-term dwelling there in verse one, a building from God in eternal house in the heavens. Now take notice in verse one, God's word describes our present earthly body, the housing for our spirit, He describes it there in verse one, notice, as a tent. And that's a very fitting description that our present physical body on earth is likened by God to a tent. What is a tent? It is a temporary dwelling place. It is a temporary dwelling place to stay somewhere for a short period of time until you move on. That's what a tent is. A tent is not designed to be a permanent dwelling place. It's too weak and flimsy in its design. Due to wear and tear, tents fall apart, they leak, they can collapse. It's simply not something even that you can become completely comfortable in. It's a temporary dwelling place, not permanent housing. And unlike a permanent structure, it's way more prone, a tent is, to wear out more easily. It's just the nature of what a tent is. And listen, no matter how nice of a tent you have, and you may have a really nice tent, 
And no matter what you do and how important it is you to take care of your tent, make it nicer, spruce it up, make it stronger, feed it all the organic stuff. You can do everything you can. It's still a tent. It's just a really nice tent now. But it's still, from God's perspective, a temporary tent that's perishing, failing, and ultimately is going to be destroyed by the process of use. God refers to our physical body as a tent that gradually, subject to use, falls apart. And that is how our body is described. This physical body is not intended for long-term usage. It's something God has given to you and I temporarily, and I'm glad he has. They're marvelous bodies. I love science. If the Lord didn't lead me in the direction that he did, science was my way of going. I loved anatomy and physiology and just marveled at the complexity of these incredible bodies that God has created out of what? The dust of the earth. The dust of the earth, and he breathed into Adam the breath of life. I mean, you want to talk about what God can do with just some dirt? I mean, technically, that's what we are. We're, we're dirt bags. We're, we're, we're physical bodies composed from the dust of the earth and God breathed his breath and caused man to become a living being. So can you imagine what the eternal body will be like? If the physical body is incredible as it is, but yet this physical body is a tent used to house our spirit and so that we can express ourselves, so that we can embrace and do things and experience life on this earthly level. God's given us this physical body, but notice he says this tent will one day be, verse 1, he says, destroyed. Whether that is because of it just wearing out over time and deteriorating or whether it's because something happens to us, right? There are many ways our tent can be destroyed in this earthly life. But he says this tent will ultimately be destroyed, and when it becomes destroyed, that person will then depart from the tent. And this is the picture God uses that when our life comes to an end here on earth, Death, from God's perspective, is like taking down of a tent, taking down the tent and departing from it to move on to go home. That's God's viewpoint of the death process of the believer. Peter describes it this way, talking about his own death. Second Peter 1, Peter said, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly... I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So apparently the Lord had given Peter this sense. Peter, time's short for you. And, and your days are limited. And Peter just sensed that it was, it was a short time until his departure was coming. And sometimes I think the Lord may begin to give us a sense of that. Your time is short. And pretty soon you're going to be putting off that tent. And Peter said this inspired him to share some of the things that he did, but he saw his death as a departure from a tent that had expired in its usage, and now it was time to transition or to move on. And for the believer, it is a marvelous housing upgrade. Incredible. Right? You may never be able to upgrade in housing now. You will in heaven. You will in heaven. It's going to be an incredible upgrade because notice he says we're going to move from a tent into, he says, verse 1, a building a permanent structure, something way nicer than a tent. And not only that, he says it's a permanent building and it is designed by who? God. God's the builder. Jesus was a carpenter, wasn't he? Can you imagine what he's doing in 2,000 years? The bodies that are being created for us and prepared for us, we get this gift from our father, this inheritance 
As a kind act, he gives us this new body or building from God, and it's an eternal dwelling, it says, not made with human hands. In other words, it doesn't have frailties and limitations. It is absolutely perfect because everything God does is perfect. So everything in that new body is perfect and incredible, built by an all-wise, all-powerful, eternal God to last eternally, to last forever. And it has greater capacities than this temporary body. It will be a body free from all struggles. No more pain. No more sickness. No more hardships and complications with our health. No more struggles in just what goes on in our humanity and the defiled part of us of our sinful flesh. That won't exist anymore. You won't be stuck in a body anymore that's tempted or prone to sin or struggling in any way in the frailties of your humanity. Colossians says we're going to receive a glorified body just like Jesus' glorified body. You look at Jesus' resurrected glorified body. It was physical. It was material. He embraced people. People could touch him. There was a physical aspect to it. Jesus was eating in his resurrected body. Praise the Lord for that. And I bet you never gain weight. You can just stuff yourself, the wedding supper of the lamb, with everything you want. No worries about that. It was a body that seemed to have incredible capacity to recognize people automatically. And look, as you find yourself struggling with the deterioration of your own physical body from degree to degree, remember this spiritual reality here. It is part of an earthly existence. And keep an eternal perspective in light of that. As you find yourself frustrated in dealing with the tent wearing out, the tent falling apart, ask God to help you to live in light of eternity so that you don't become disheartened or overly discouraged by the failing human tent that you're living in for a duration of time while on this earth. It's a part of a biblical process, God says. The tent does wear out, and understanding this reality that there's something better coming kind of helps in that process because it reminds you this, you're not going to have that body forever. Eventually, you get to set it aside, and you get to move into something far more marvelous. And as we watch our loved ones from time to time, their health failing, understand this is a part of a natural process. Don't let yourself become over frustrated or concerned or confused. Why is their health failing? All of our health is failing. It's destined. Every man's going to die once. Part of living is dying. And our tents are going to fail. And at some point when you watch someone, I've been family members and certainly with people through the church you know, pastoral ministry over the years in Pennsylvania and here and watching their loved ones slowly deteriorate and, and pass away. And you realize at a certain point that tent becomes like a prison. It's like their spirit is incarcerated inside of a failing body. And it's almost at a certain point you find yourself in love saying, Lord, set them free. Set them free, Lord. That tent is failing. Lord, set them free. And there's this beautiful awareness to be able to have that that kind of helps navigate as we go through that process. Paul goes on, verse 2, to say, for in this tent, now he says, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. The idea is, uh, you know, unwrapped in something, disembodied, the indication is, see there's we'll talk about. 
For we who are in this tent, he says, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed or better clothed, the idea is, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So here's where the challenge comes. Because as a Christian, we already possess eternal life in our spirit, but yet we're still living in a temporary earthly body, there's this struggle that goes on inside of us. See, because when you receive Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. So if you've received Jesus Christ and his spirit dwells within you, then technically you already possess eternal life. Eternal life has been given you. Now, one day you're going to experience the full reality of eternal life or eternal living as you enter into the eternal dimension, but the quality of eternal life has already been given to you in the spirit of the eternal God as God gave you the gift of eternal life. But the problem is, so your spirit has eternal life dwelling within it, and yet you're living in this temporary earthly body. So there's always this kind of struggle that goes on inside of us where we find ourselves kind of wrestling with these earthly bodies. And notice that's why he says two times here in verses two to four, two times he says that's why we find ourselves as Christians groaning. So if you groaned this morning, that's biblical. If you groaned in this last week, that you're, you're doing what's scriptural. He says, verse four, look at it. He says, we who are in this tent groan. Look what he says, being burdened. That is, we find ourselves groaning with frustration because of these physical bodies at times. Groaning with the pain, with the struggles of dealing with a deteriorating body and failing health. As our body gets weaker and as we become more frail and we deal with more health complications or we navigate through life injuries that then plague us in these bodies, our body, is this not true, can go from being an absolute blessing to being one of life's biggest burdens, right? He says, we in these tents do groan being burdened. Sometimes our own physical body can become very burdensome to us. Dealing with our physical body, its issues can be burdensome. And so it's biblical to groan in some ways because of this old bag of bones that we're living in and that we are are struggling with. And so this is a totally normal thing. Paul says this in Romans 8, 23, we believers groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory for we long for our body, listen, to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us the full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised to us. So we groan because of our struggling health. We groan because we're stuck living on this earth and the influences of sin. And so we groan to be released from this and to be in the presence of the Lord. And so we're kind of having this burdensome groaning. He says, verse two, we groan earnestly. Look what he says, verse two, earnestly desiring to be clothed instead with our habitation, which is from heaven. So notice the analogy again here. He uses, now he uses the analogy of getting that new body, like changing out garments that we're wearing taking off the old garments, the old clothes that have been used and they're dirty and it's time for them to be removed and putting on a fresh new set of clothes, putting on the new clothes, being clothed with that habitation, which is from heaven. We have that longing to be clothed with our eternal habitation. That is both our new glorified body in heaven as well as just the inhabiting of the eternal realm in heaven. And he says in verse three, if indeed having been clothed, 
we shall not be found naked. The implication there is we will not be existing like disembodied spirits, like ghosts just floating around the eternal realm, even as clothing covers the body so that it's not naked and the body is within the clothing. This is the idea the analogy is giving. In the same way that the body is within the clothing, our spirit will be clothed within a new eternal body. Our spirit won't be unclothed or naked, floating around like a disembodied spirit in heaven, where you see someone who's your loved one, and you're so glad to finally see him, and you go for a hug, and whoosh, and you just, let's try that again. We have all eternity. Eventually, we'll connect. No, you're going to get to embrace and hug and kiss and see people again, and there's going to be a physical existence. Jesus' glorified body was physical tangible. Aren't you so glad God lovingly is going to give us a a glorified physical body? It'll be completely different, but it will have a material aspect to it. One translation renders this, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Paul says, verse four, for we who are in this tent grown being burdened, not because we want to be, again, notice unclothed, but he says further clothed, better clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So again, we're going to be clothed to a much higher degree with that new eternal body. That's the picture there. It's like going from wearing your old dirty work jeans and t-shirt to putting on a $3,000 high-end Armani suit or like a space suit maybe even that's completely designed for a totally different realm. And Because again, understand, it's going to be a different realm. I am thoroughly convinced one of the primary reasons we need new glorified spiritual bodies for the eternal realm is because this temporary body would not be able to handle the presence of God and all of the glory. If your eyes truly looked upon the Lord and saw the glory and the brilliance of heaven and you had these eyes, they would just melt right out of your head. You wouldn't be able to handle it. I think there are going to be things that we see that are so incredible and glorious, we're going to need a whole do. Hot hold do. We're going to need a whole do, whole do too. <laughs> Maybe you don't have a do. You're going to get a do back. <laughs> I don't know if that was the most prophetic word this morning. <laughs> We're going to get a whole new capability in everything in the way that we have a body now to a much higher degree. To hear sounds, to see things, to experience things, to understand things as eternal things are revealed to us. And he says, this will happen so that mortality as well, verse four, he said, will be swallowed up by life. The idea is that this mortal body now that's prone to decaying and dying, it's going to be an immortal body then. No more death. The death experience will never be something we have to deal with ever again. How wonderful to know we'll dwell forever in that glorious eternal state. And that is assured to us. That's why Paul says, verse five, look, he who's prepared us for this very thing that he's talking about is God, who's also given us the spirit, he says, as a guarantee. So notice what Paul's saying here. He's declaring this whole idea of eternal reward, a new glorified body in heaven, the heavenly experience. He says, this is all God's plan. And God's the one who's even assured us that this is going to come to pass because he will perform it. He says the beginning of verse five, he who's prepared us for all this very thing is God himself. 
Paul's resting in this wonderful thing, he says, God purposely created and designed our lives, even in this temporary existence now in the way things are, so that one day we can transition into this eternal existence. And in love and wisdom, you may fairly say, God's the one that's prepared these type of present bodies that we have now on earth, which do wear out and fail over time in this earthly existence. And part of the reason is to use our earthly experiences now and even the hardships and struggles on this earth and in our bodies to use these earthly experiences to get us into right relationship with God and also to get us very enthusiastic about the realities of heaven and to get our heart attached to something much greater, a proper desire. And look, this is generally true for everyone. God tries to prepare every human being for eternity. That's the effort that God does make. God has tried to prepare everything possible for each person to come into relationship with him. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, or excuse me, Luke, Acts 17. He says this, God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now listen to what he says. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And then he marked out their appointed times when they would live in the generation, when they would be alive in history and the boundaries of their lands where you would live on this earth. And God did this, here's the key, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far from every one of us. Do you see what the word of God says? God in all of his love and his wisdom, caring about every single human soul, predetermined at what time period in human history a person would be born. And where they would be born and live geographically, what location, what family. And he, he allowed all of those factors to happen just the way he did because he knew that was the best possible chance that that person would have through their experiences to reach out in life and realize they need God. Oh, why's my life been like this? Why would God let me go through this? Why'd God let me be born here? And, and all that stuff we asked. You want to know the main reason why? Because God knew that that would give you the best possible chance to truly find God yourself. That your life experiences would cause you and I to come to the place where we would finally reach out in personal desperation and, and find God. Because that would prepare our soul eternally. And that'd be the best thing ever. And God does that generally for every person. But look, even for all of us, verse 5 is also true in regards to every single Christian. God has prepared us to be ready to enter heaven. So when Paul says God has prepared us for this very thing, the reality is God's prepared us in every way through what he did through Jesus to make us ready for heaven in this eternal experience. God sent Jesus and his love for us so that he could live as a man perfectly, a life that I can't live, and then die sacrificially in my place, taking my punishment and your punishment on the cross for our sins, that he could rise the third day and ascend back into heaven. And now Jesus offers the free gift of God, which is eternal life and forgiveness of sins, not by working for it, by just receiving it for free. 
And then when you do receive it, what does he do? He wipes away all your sin. He gives you a righteous standing in Jesus. Jesus gives you all of his righteousness. Jesus gives you and I the gift of eternal life. He gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. He gives us a genuine relationship with God. He writes our name in the book of life. And Paul's saying, God's prepared all this for us. He prepared us. That's how we know we can rely on this. He says, God has prepared us for this very eternal experience. And he even speaks in verse five of one of the main things that God's done as well. He says, who also has given us the spirit of God as a guarantee. That is when we receive Jesus, the Bible teaches that moment of our spiritual conversion. When we receive Jesus, the Bible teaches that the spirit of God enters inside of us. And then the Holy Spirit remains within us. He dwells and lives within us. He makes us alive to God and to understand spiritual things. And then he dwells within us as a helper. Take, think about this forward if you would. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God gives us a part of himself while we're on this earth. He gives us his spirit to dwell inside of us to guarantee that one day we will be together forever in eternity. And God gives us this glorious gift. I'm, I, you know what? I'm going to give my spirit to dwell inside of you so that you know how guaranteed your eternal life is. Because you're going to fail a little bit along the way. And you'll blow it periodically. And you'll get confused and doubt and discouraged. But God says, I'm going to give my spirit to you to live inside of you so that my spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God and that you know that it is guaranteed that I'm going to bring your soul home to heaven. Look, despite what happens, how we fail, how hard life is, heaven is guaranteed by faith, by your faith in the finished work of Jesus because God has made the deposit into your life to guarantee. In fact, that word guarantee literally is that term in the Greek. It's a deposit. It's a down payment. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to finish the transaction. Here's my down payment. I'm going to give you my spirit. If that's not sure, I don't know what's sure. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him, Jesus, you trusted when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Look, folks, despite what unfolds in life, and these have been crazy days, despite what unfolds in your life, if your faith is in Jesus Christ and you've received him, one thing is for sure, God's spirit is within you. God has prepared you and reserved your reservation to be with him eternally in heaven. And in the end, here's God's guarantee. It's all gonna be fine. It's gonna be better than fine going to be far better, the Bible says, incredibly superior. And knowing what God's done for us should inspire us, Paul says, verse 6. So we, in light of this, are always now confident, he says, knowing that while we are at home right now in the body, physically, we are absent from the Lord. So notice, despite what's going on in this world, in our personal life, one thing Paul says we can always be confident about is that while we are still living in this earthly body, right now we are absent or away from being together with our Lord. He pictures here being detached from the one that we want to be with. You might say we are separated somewhat from the one that we love, the one that we truly want to be with. 
We feel like we're detached. You know, we're in love with Jesus. One day we're going to be with Jesus and see him face to face. But right now, to a degree, we're separated because we're still in the temporal realm. He's in the eternal realm. And so there is this degree of we feel absent. We feel like we're not at home here because we know our true home is there. And so in some ways, when you find yourself feeling like a foreigner on this earth, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I don't feel like I belong here. You're on the right track. (laughs) If you really feel like you belong here, we should talk afterwards. Because citizenship of heaven is in your heart. And so you realize, man, I'm here, but this is, this is just not my homeland. And you sense that. I'm absent from the one that I want to be with my Lord. That's why Paul says, how do you navigate in this time, verse 7? For we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Why, during this time in the body, we have to live by faith. Peter talks about it this way in 1 Peter 1. He says, you love him even though you've never seen him. That is with the physical eye. Though you don't see him now, you trust him and rejoice with glorious, inexpressible joy. And the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. See, right now, as we live in a relationship with Jesus, we live in a relationship with Jesus by faith. We walk with him by faith. We don't have the physical presence of Jesus on earth in a body with us anymore. After he died and resurrected, he ascended back into heaven. So right now, we walk with Jesus by faith. Through the eyes of our heart, we see the Lord. We know that he's real. We experience him. But right now, we live by faith. And there are others who have been blessed to depart the highway in Exeter 2 before us that, guess what? They're now living by sight. Right now, Revelation 4 and 5 and the glory of the throne of God and seeing Jesus, they're not living by faith anymore. For them, it's all become sight. Now they are with the Lord together with him. And look, this is a great reminder for all of us that the Christian life is to be lived and walked out by faith and not by sight. Right now, we live by faith. We trust in the Lord by faith, not by what our eyes see circumstantially. Look, let me encourage you this morning in light of God's word here and living in an eternal perspective. Don't live simply by what you see in your circumstances. Don't make judgments and decisions and navigate your life by how it looks or what you see that intimidates you or makes you afraid. Fear is not a healthy motivator. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by fear. We walk by faith, not by sight, not by what's going on. Walk forward in a spirit of faith. Trust the Lord. That's how the Christian life is to be lived, walking by faith, depending and trusting. He goes on, verse 8, to say, For we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to then, he says, be absent one day from the body, and to then be, notice, present with the Lord. So here's the absolute confidence of the Christian on the other side of death, when we're no longer living on this earth. The Bible teaches the very moment we die, our spirit is released from this temporary body, from this tent, and in an instant, we become absent from this body and present immediately together with the Lord. He says, to be absent from the body, we're confident is to be, not one day be, to be right away, to immediately be present with the Lord. Directly, immediately, a person departs from this realm and they instantaneously transition 
into the eternal dimension and are present with the Lord Jesus. And this is the blessed assurance of every believer. Paul, speaking of his own death, spoke of it this way. He said, I desire to depart and listen to be with Christ. And then he said, which is far better, far better. Those are the best words Paul could come up with. How wonderful to know that when our life is over, the moment it's over, instantaneously, there is no interim. We will be instantaneously with the Lord. To die as a Christian is to instantaneously be present together with the Lord. And to understand then, and I don't think we fully will until then, to understand fully then what it means that to be with Christ is far better. It's going to be far better. I can't even imagine. I don't know if our little minds could understand it. But Paul says it's far better, and that's the hope we can live with now. And that's what gives us peace in our problems that better days are coming. Something far better is coming. And that's what gives us that stamina to navigate knowing we shall one day to be together with the Lord that should also motivate us as well. And that's why Paul concludes verse 9 and 10 saying this, therefore, that's a contrast word, basically saying a conclusive way, in light of all these things, therefore, in light of that, he says, we make it our aim, whether present now on earth or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul says, in light of this awareness and assurance that one day we are going to be together with our Lord, literally in his presence, face to face, and held accountable for our lives on earth in regards to how we live, he says this should give us proper motivation for our spiritual lives. You see what he says? Look at it with me there in verse 9. He says, in light of these things, we make it our aim, our goal, our target to do what? To be well-pleasing to him. Paul and his fellow companions said, this is our aim. We live with a purposeful target in mind. Intentionally, we're aiming at something. Every day we get out of bed in the morning, we're not living aimlessly. He says, we get out of bed in the morning, we know exactly what our aim is. Our aim today is to try and please Jesus. We don't wander around, man, what, should I, what, what targets should I have? I'm looking for some goals. What's my five-year goal, my 10-year goal? Paul says, I got it. Please Jesus. All the other stuff are secondary goals, really. And if you're living to please Jesus, all the other stuff kind of falls into place, does it not? So Paul says, whatever we're doing, what we give priority to, how we respond to matters, We're asking, what would please Jesus in this situation? This is the way that Paul and his companions lived. Their aim was to be well-pleasing to the Lord. They considered what would bring pleasure to Jesus' heart. And they tried to do things and conduct themselves in a manner that Jesus would be pleased with. And look, for all of us this morning, that should be the underlying motivation for how we all live as Christians, I don't know about you. I'm not a very smart guy, and I'm not a very complicated guy. Simplicity is my best friend. I can do that. I can remember that. What's my my aim? Try and please Jesus, Tony. Because life can get really crazy and complicated, and people outwit me tremendously, but I, I can always bring it back down to that. Okay, in this situation, what would please the Lord here? In this decision, 
what would please the Lord in this decision? In what I should be doing with my day or my time, what would the Lord want me to do? What would please the Lord? In the way that I handle things or respond to things, in light of these realities that I know, hey, in light of all that Jesus has done for me, I want to think about what pleases the Lord, not what matches eternal, you know, I mean, or temporary earthly people's responses to things. What would make Jesus happy? So then we're always asking those questions. Lord, does this please you? Important question. If I do this, Lord, is this going to please you? Lord, if I'm doing this, does this displease you? And when we're trying to navigate how to make those decisions, what would please the Lord in this situation? Ask that question. What things can I do daily that pleases the Lord? Because if you truly love someone, right? When you truly love someone, you want to please them, right? That's part of how the love relationship thing works. When you love somebody, you can tell when somebody loves somebody. You know, I watch young men come around that love my daughters. So I watch them. And I even tell them, listen, if you want help, you should be as close to me as possible. I know them way better than you do. You think you know them. If you want help, talk to me. But I see, you know, I see them doing things. I, they, they would never do that. They never dress that way, but they do now. I know that. My wife loves blue and black. You'll notice what I wear a lot of. You do what pleases someone you love, right? And if we truly love Jesus... Our motivation should be to please Jesus. That's a demonstration of our love to him. Evaluate your life today. Are you living with that motivation? That's what we should be aspiring towards. It's a measure of our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus should make us want to live pleasing to him. And the reason Paul says this is crucial is because one day this one that we love and that we're trying to please on earth, we are going to give account before him as we stand in his presence in heaven. Because he says, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may receive the things done while in the body on earth according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, when he talks here about the judgment seat of Christ, this is not, let's talk first what it's not, this is not the great white throne judgment referred to in Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20 determines a person's eternal destiny. It is a judgment for the unsaved soul. It is a time when those who are unconverted, who rejected Jesus Christ, will one day stand before him at the great white throne judgment and give account, finally, for their rejection of Christ. And when it is then found that their name is not written in the book of life, they will then receive their sentence for their judgment which is to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. This is something far different, yet still very important in light of eternity. This is a time when we come as believers who have made it into heaven as our faith in Jesus Christ has brought us there, where we will stand before Jesus to be evaluated. The term their judgment seat is really referring to what's called the Bema seat in that day. It was where the Greek judges would sit and preside over sporting events like our Olympics or something like that. You have judges, right? And they watch how people perform. And then the judges determine based upon how they perform, good, bad, did they cheat, did they compete according to the rules? The judges then give an evaluation, and then more than that, they ultimately are the ones who give out the reward according to how people performed or did not perform. 
or if they cheated and broke the rules or they played according to the rules. So this is the idea here of what's being described is that Jesus has this judgment seat of Christ, this Bema seat where one day you and I who become Christians on earth and the Bible uses what athletic analogies run your race. Paul says, I've run my race. I fought my fight. And this is the idea that each one of us has a race to run. And as we run our race, one day Jesus is going to evaluate how well we ran our race as a Christian on this earth. And that will determine our eternal reward or loss thereof. Now, listen, our salvation is settled by faith in Christ alone. It's not your performance that assures your eternal destiny. Your faith in Christ assures your eternal destiny. But that being said, there is a judgment seat of Christ where one day, notice he says there, verse 10, each one individually, we are going to come before Jesus. Right now, we're running our race. Jesus is the spiritual sports judge, if you would. He's watching our performance, what we're doing good, what we're doing bad, even as a Christian. And he's watching how we serve the Lord and live for the Lord and navigate our Christian life. And he says, one day, each one will receive accordingly for how they lived out their Christian life. You're getting into heaven. You're not getting kicked out of heaven. But but the idea here is these spiritual rewards. And look, sometimes I hear Christians say, oh, what spiritual reward? Who cares about that? I just, I mean, as long as I get into heaven, I don't need no rewards. I'm going to be in heaven, man. Well, listen, the Bible pictures heaven as this beautiful throne. And it says the people are casting their crowns down the lamb of God's feet in worship. You don't want to be up in heaven with one of those little beanie propellers. (laughs) And everybody else is casting their crowns at Jesus' feet, and they're having the best worship gathering ever. And you're looking at somebody saying, man, could I borrow one of those and try that one time? You want the full experience in heaven. You want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and receive the full reward that God has for you. And this is what he's describing here, that we would live in light of eternity because we want to receive a full reward, that when we stand before Jesus, we want to hear the greatest commendation because we live to please him. Hey, let me encourage you this morning. Don't let your Christian life be reduced to just a fire insurance policy. God wants something way more for you. Make it your aim to live in light of eternity and to please Jesus. And I assure you, when you get to heaven, that'll all make sense.